If you brought your Bible, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We're finishing up what is officially known as the Beatitudes. We will uh, extend it just a bit to take it kind of uh, another step down into the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount was written by the greatest sermon writer, preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. And this was one of the greatest texts, I think, in all of Scripture, is to listen to, read the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so today we're looking at uh, the Beatitudes of Persecution, or being persecuted. Uh, we are wrapping up, and next week we're going to talk about salt and light. And it's a challenging message from our Acts 1-8 that we're going to be challenged from the Word of God next week. Matthew 5, verses 1 and following, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came up to him. He opened his mouth, and he began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor, uh, uh, excuse me, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight today. Lord, I pray that you remove any obstacles from us hearing from you today. Father, I pray that you rivet into our hearts this wonderful text today that we are, 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 should be salt and light, but Lord, we know that we're going to go through difficult times even in the midst of the glory moments in our lives. And Father, I pray that as we unpack your word today that you'll be lifted up in everything Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for what you're about to do in our midst today. Thank you for this beautiful musical worship that we've had today. And we thank you, Father, for this wonderful time praying for our dear brothers and sisters in New York, as well as our missionaries around the globe. And Father, this wonderful church called Roswell Street Baptist Church and the missional opportunities that it has. Father, I pray that you will continue to keep our eyes focused and engaged upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Father, we do lift up. Brian and the team, as they seek out to find your permanent senior pastor for this congregation, Lord, we know you have him already picked out. We know that you have already selected him. And, Father, it is our joy and our privilege to pray him here and his family. Father, we give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint were the martyrs who uh, ministered in Ecuador to the Akuan Indians. And Jim Elliott said these words, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What a statement. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain 
what he cannot lose. I was thinking as we were wrapping up and getting to this section of Scripture, I was thinking about there were several questions that kept arising in my own heart, and I want to deliver those questions to you and help us understand exactly what Jesus is teaching in this particular section of Scripture. Is Jesus teaching on persecution outdated. Now we hear about martyrs, we hear about the martyrs around the world, but is Jesus teaching on persecution outdated in today's time? The first question that we take up this morning, is the word about persecution relevant for these days? Has modern society become so tolerant that the talk of persecution is completely irrelevant or outdated? My answer is that these verses are very relevant and it's not outdated at all. Let me mention two reasons why I believe that persecution is not outdated. First of all, Jesus' teaching on persecution is relevant because of a global perspective. A global perspective. Now, I don't want to bore you with a lot of statistics, but I think it's, it's helpful for us to build the foundation for where I believe the Lord is taking us in this particular text. The first reason comes from this biblical perspective. In, in just the last year alone, over 30, uh, 360 million Christians live in places where they are experiencing high levels of persecution and discrimination. 5,898 Christians killed last year for their faith. 5,898 5,110 churches or other Christian buildings were attacked or destroyed or damaged in some form or fashion. 4,765 believers detained without trial, arrested, and sentenced or imprisoned for their faith in Christ. According to uh, the, the latest reports, government restrictions on social hostilities towards religion have risen in 187 countries around the globe. There are few Christians, believer, Christian believers, in the country of Afghanistan where Christianity is seen as a Western religion. Those are, that exist must keep their faith in secret or risk being rejected by their families or even killed for the faith. There are no churches except the secret churches in Afghanistan today. Pew Research Forum, uh, the Center for Forum on Religious and Public Life, finds that 64 nations, about one-third of the countries in the world, have high or very high restrictions on religions. Because of some of those restrictions, countries are populous. Nearly 70% of the world's population, 6.8 billion people, live in countries where high restrictions on religions and there are blunt of the uh, falls on religious minorities. So we can at least say that Jesus' teaching today in Scripture that we read is still relevant because of a global perspective. So the second thing that I think that we need to understand that Jesus' teaching on persecution is relevant because it distinguished between convictions about sinful nature and new creation. 
So as I was unpacking these questions in my own heart and the research that I did, the reason for saying these words about persecution are relevant are taken from the Apostle Paul's words to to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to what he says. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. How could Paul make such a sweeping statement? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Well, he makes it based on a deep conviction about the nature of Christianity and the nature of sinfulness of man. He is convinced that there is such tension between the message and the way of life of Christians on the one hand and the midst of the way and life of the world on the other hand. That convictions, uh, that, that conflict is completely inevitable. We will face persecution to one degree or another. The conviction is rooted in the nature of fallen man, the nature that a view of creation. Now, you know where that all began. The began of fallen man began back in Genesis. You know the story. Do I have to say it, ladies? You ate us out of house and home. And started the whole mess down the way, right? So fallen man, that's where it began. Therefore, it goes out. Does it go out of date? It does not. It's still true today. Sooner or later, a deep God-centered Christian will be mistreated for things he or she believes and the life that he or she lives. So these words about Jesus on persecution are completely relevant for today's society. Not only because of millions of Christians around the global village that we have being persecuted for their faith this, this very day, but also because to one degree or another, you and I are, will face some kind of persecution who are dead earnest about putting God first in our lives, in our work, our home, our school our leisure time, we will bump into some form of opposition sooner or later. And none of us know when our freedom may cease, when we may call, be called by God to go to a dangerous place. Now, folks, let me tell you something. God may not be calling you to a dangerous place to go serve. I truly believe if the church will stand firm on the Word of God... Believing that it has the power to save anybody that we present it to, we can change our own nation. We can change our own nation. You say, wait a minute, we're a Christian nation. Have you watched the the newsreels lately? Have you watched what's happening? No political scenario will take place that will change the nation. Only Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit can change a nation. And it's time for the church of the living God to realize that persecution not only happens in Afghanistan, persecution not only happens in the Middle East and in the, the Asian countries, but it happens in Georgia of all places, my dear friends. It happens. So why, what is Jesus teaching? Why does persecution come? Well, first of all, let's focus on why the persecution comes. It happens. It is real. It's taking place each and every day. This is so important that that all persecuted people are blessed. Only, Only those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
Verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So the righteousness is the structure of the Beatitudes. Now, understand something. There are two groups of four, and each of the groups ends with a reference to righteousness. The first group ends with this. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness. The second group uh, ends with verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So those who are blessed, we are seeking out righteousness and we are going to be persecuted. The three uh, beatitudes that lead for hunger and thirst for righteousness are descriptions of kind of holy emptiness that we have. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for the needy condition. The meek who hand their cause over to God. It is natural that these three descriptions of emptiness should be followed up by a description of hunger. And if we don't have something, you will be hungry for it every time. If you don't have food somewhere along the way, you're going to get hungry. Amen? And it follows up by the next three Beatitudes and description of emptiness but but of fulfilledness. The hunger is the beginning to, uh, of satisfied by a following overflow of mercy and pure heart and power to make peace. So the righteousness longed for in verse 6 is given the form of mercy, pure, purity, and peacemaking results in persecution for the very righteousness. I'm saying to you, these two groups are very important for us to understand here today. So righteousness is the structure of the beatitude. Secondly, righteousness is a relationship with Jesus. Another way to define that right in verse 10 is to look at a parallel of verse 10 and verse 11. Verse 11 and verse 10, the persecution on account of righteousness sake in verse 10 and verse 11 on account of Jesus. Blessed are you when men revel against you or insult you, I should say, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you uh, falsely on my account. The word on my account or on account of righteousness probably more than likely in every theologian that I've studied mean the same thing. Joe, they parallel one with the other. We are going to, if we're going to strive for righteousness, we are going to be insulted. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn that true righteousness, the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, always involves a relationship with Jesus? You can't have righteousness in your life and not have a relationship with Jesus. It always ends with that. True righteousness is not done for its own sake. It's done for Jesus' sake. The mercy and purity and the peacemaking of the disciples of Jesus comes from Jesus. Without me, he says, you can do nothing. And it's done in honor of Jesus. It is this attachment to Jesus that gives our righteousness this distinct characteristic. Now, we're not special. We're just saved by God's grace. Amen? We're just saved by God's grace. So we have this righteousness in our lives. Because we're saved, we have the righteousness of God. Righteousness on account of him and righteousness for Jesus' sake. So what does righteousness persecute? Why is it persecuted? It raises this question that I was wrestling with all week long. If that is what righteousness means, being merciful and pure and peaceable, 
by relying on Christ and living for his glory. Why would anybody persecute that? Why would anybody do it? It doesn't seem very offensive, does it? Being being pure and being merciful to people and not making war but making peace. That seems nice. Why would anybody want to come against that? The answer goes to the root cause found in Luke's gospel, chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Jesus said. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This, this comes the persecution, the mockery in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. They had a desire for money. They, they loved money. They wanted to hoard money. All Heard all of this and they were scoffed by it. They didn't like it whatsoever. There is the persecution and the part of the explanation. They were lovers of money. In other words, Jesus' attitude towards money is an attack on their love of money. Jesus says, you can't serve me and money. You got to choose which one you're going to be. Now, time out for those of you rich folks in the room. We thank God for you. We really do. But I've never met a really, really strong believer that had lots of money that let money be the object. They always let the service of money. Money is an amazing tool. Amazing tool. We can't buy anything in the United States without money. You say, well, wait, I got a credit card. Just swipe that thing. Well, you're going to have to pay that credit card off, and it takes money. I know that I'm speaking to the choir here. But listen to me, dear friends. Money is a phenomenal tool, but it is a horrible master. If money controls your life, then you are fallen victim to the things of the world and not the things of God. Can I get an amen to that or an oh me? Then comes the rest of the explanation of the mockery. Verse 15, but he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. So here's the root of the persecution. With its two shafts, one shaft the love of something evil and untrue, and the other shaft is the need for justifying that love. This is the root cause of the persecution. Jesus comes on the scene with this way of life and this wonderful message that implies that love of money is a treason towards God. You can't serve two masters This is not an insult. It's part of his purity of the church. It's the truth. It's the essential to know if you're going to be saved by his grace. You cannot love one or the other. you got to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. But it goes against the Pharisees' love of money, does it not? So to, tr- to justify them, Jesus, j- they just put Jesus down. They talked ugly about him. Then the standard of operating procedure for self-justification, and this is the root of persecution. A life devoted to righteousness will 
be persecuted. A life devoted to righteousness will be persecuted. Why is that? Why will godliness be persecuted or insulted or spoken against? Well, let me just give you a couple of quick examples. If you cherish chastity, your life will be attacked on people, people's love for free sex. If you embrace temperance, your life will be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you pursue self-control, your life will be in, in, uh, a charge, uh, charged with excess eating. If you want self-control, you'll be motivated to eat more, eat more, have it your way, drive through windows. If you walk humbly with your Lord, you will be exposed to evil of pride. If you speak with compassion, you will be thrown callous into a sharp relief. You'll have all kind of insults thrown your way. If you are a spiritually minded person, you will, will expose the worldly, worldly minded, mindedness of those who are around you. So I'm saying to you, a life devoted follower of Jesus Christ will be persecuted a student at the elementary school a student at the middle school a student at the high school or at the college campus or a worker in the in the factory or a businessman making a deal we're going to go through persecution if we're going to stand firm on the word of God the blessedness of the persecution is found in verse 11 blessed or fortunate are you when men insult or re- revive re- Revel against you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad. So I set the tone for us to understanding what the whole Beatitudes is all about. When I started unpacking this and studying through this series, I said, man, we're going to get down to that persecution section and I'm not going to want to preach that. That's not going to be very fashionable of the day. People are not going to say, well, that's, a, that's not going to reach the next generation. If you tell them they're going to be persecuted, what possibly can we come out of that? He says, rejoice and be glad. Nobody said amen to that. What possibly can justify the command to be glad when we're hated and mocked? Jesus doesn't, does have death in view here. This is what they would do to the disciples. Listen to Matthew 4, 24 verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I'd rather be hated for his namesake than your namesake. I'd rather be hated for Jesus' namesake than my family heritage namesake. My family heritage namesake will not give me eternal life. But because I'm saved by God's grace, I will spend eternity with him. So I go through some tribulation. So I go through some difficult times. Though we get some bad news on a report from the doctor, we can get through it because rejoice and be glad on account of Jesus. Why this shocking counsel that Jesus gave 
was another question that I dealt with. What can truly justify such counsel with people in pain? Rejoice and be glad after going through the persecution? There's two possibilities. Either this is a talk of an intense, insensitive, sophomoric, so to speak, ivory tower theologian who has never known what it is to scream in pain, or this is a talk of one who has something and that's tasted something and knows something about the reality that most people have never tasted or seen in their own life. This is the Lord speaking. Not Dan Moran speaking. This is God's word speaking. Not my words, but his words. It's not some pastoral novice walking around the funeral home when somebody's going through a difficult time and saying, oh, praise the Lord. People go through difficult times in funerals and situations and bad reports from the doctor. We need to realize that's part of life. This is the Lord speaking and he's saying to the disciples and he's saying to us, most of us will drink the cup of martyrdom. We won't, uh, most of us will never go through what Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint went through. Most of us will go through our lives and spend the rest of our lives and then we'll die and we'll have some nice things said about us and there'll be beautiful music and there'll be some flowers and we'll have a great meal afterwards and it's done and you're in heaven and you didn't get martyred. He can say it because he knows beyond a shadow of doubt that the reward in heaven will be that more than compensated for any suffering that we must endure in the service of the Lord. He knows that's why he can say this. Rejoice, he says, and be glad is your service, uh, your reward is in heaven. There is a, a great mystery here. The mystery of joy in the midst of agony. The mystery of gladness in the midst of misery and groaning. And the mystery that continued, contained a miracle, namely a miracle of faith, is the bedrock assurance of our salvation. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. Now notice what he said, what Matthew's gospel 19 verse 29 says. And everyone who has left his house or his brother or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherited, inherited eternal life. But especially what the Apostle Paul wrote, and I ran across this this week, and it just blessed my heart. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and following, he says, for this slight momentarily, Affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison because we look not on the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. Woo! Can I get an amen to that? We're not worried about what we see right now. We're not worried that Brian and his team hasn't found us a pastor. Why? Because God's not delivered him here yet. Quit worrying about it. Quit panicking about it. We're just going to keep them working. Amen? Keeps them out of jail anyway. I'm just telling you. We're going to get this thing done, guys. But here on earth, we can't see it, but we can't see heaven, but it's awaiting for us. He says that affliction prepares and brings about eternal weight of glory. Dr. Charles Hogg said these words, Afflictions are the cause of eternal glory. Not the notorious cause, but still the procuring cause. 
God has seen fit to reveal his purpose not only to reward with exceeding joy in the affliction of his people, but to make those afflictions and the meanings and, and, and the means of working out that joy. Let me close with this. I want to press home one clear implication of this text. Jesus wills for his disciples to desire a reward in heaven. More than we desire the reward of the world. Jesus wills for your heart to be so set on heaven that to leave this earth is a cause for rejoicing. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. All sorrow, yet always rejoicing as Jesus sweat blood, drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane, faced with his own pain, but the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. We must look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, dear friends. Jesus wills for us to have our hearts primarily in heaven, our hopes primarily in heaven, our longings primarily in heaven, our joy primarily in heaven. There is no other way that you can rejoice and be glad at the loss of your eternal joys. How shall we rejoice and be glad when things are taken away from us? Why? Because we will spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the famous writer Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Beth Age wrote about him. He said these words as he left his prison room on his way to the gallows in 1945, he said to Payne Best, This is the end for me, the beginning of life. It's the end here, but it's the beginning of life. That's why when we go through the Beatitudes and we understand that, yes, we should be merciful, pure in heart. Yes, we should be hungering and thirst for righteousness. Yes, we're going to go through persecution. And then the Lord says, hey, guys, gather in here close. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. I go close with this one statement again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Oh, my dear friends, it's relevant persecution to the church today as it was in the first century church. Why persecution? Because he persecutes. He, we go through persecution because we are devoted to the way. Why he gives us the counsel is to understand to us, for each and every one of us, that our reward is in heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. It never returns void. Thank you for this amazing text written thousands of years ago. Father, it's so relevant today. It's so appropriate today. We have brothers and sisters that are 
worshiping the cloak of darkness right now. They're in secret churches, unable to worship in public, going through multiple days of persecution. Many will lose their life because of the cause of Christ. And we sitting here in the heart of Marietta, Georgia, in this wonderful campus, in this wonderful church called Roswell Street, Thank you for reminding us that we might not go through the persecution that those that are on the field or those that are planting churches and doing church and being the church secretly in places where your name is reviled. God, I pray your hedge of protection around those brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, that we support them the best way we can through our prayer life and more importantly through our it's not just our prayer life but through our, more importantly as long alongside our prayer life but with our financial giving so that they can have sustainability to continue to present the gospel oh god put a hedge of protection around them and father i pray that we have a heart of reckless abandonment abandon the things that we are so comfortable with to stand firm. Here in the nation where our banner says one nation under God, but Lord, we've turned our back towards you. God, I pray that we fall on our face and could ask for forgiveness and yet another opportunity to stand in the marketplace, stand in the schoolhouse, stand in the job place and share your love with a lost and dying world knowing Lord we're going to be insulted knowing that we rejoice because our reward is in heaven we love you Lord we give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for what you're doing in this place thank you Jesus for saving us for such a time as this. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I know this was not what we would consider in Christian pastoral ministry would be considered at what is called an evangelistic message. But I've done the best I could today to lift high the banner of Jesus. And Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto myself. Maybe you're here today and you've never truly invited Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Today is a day of salvation for you. Maybe today you're saying, I want to be a part of a church family that is lifting high the banner in Marietta and beyond. Maybe you're viewing us by our live stream this morning and you want to make a commitment to follow Jesus today. You can do just that by simply praying a prayer of confession and a prayer of surrender. Asking the Lord to do his work in your life. And then message us if you're on our live stream and let us know so that we can get you the initial tools it takes for you to continue to grow in your faith. Maybe you're here in this building, in this room, in the choir, here on the main level or up in the balcony. Maybe the Lord has spoken to your heart about surrendering and realizing that rejoice in the midst of the persecution. You can rejoice because our reward is in heaven. God never called a silent disciple. He always calls us publicly to pronounce what he's done privately in our lives. I challenge you to come. 
come right now. Grab one of our pastors, myself. We have encouragers that will pray with you as well. We're going to stand. Pastor Joe is going to lead us. You come right now. Father God, thank you for this time. Do your work in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand and we sing.